I am what you'd call a patient media consumer. Right now, I'm sneaking my way through Fallout 4 and I just finished watching Lost in 2019. But I had the good sense to watch the HBO series Chernobyl shortly after it released. In Chernobyl, no spoilers here, the villain is radiation. It's an evil that is frightening not just because of its capacity for pain, but because of how inescapable and unrelenting it is as a poison. Its ghost is everywhere in the series. When you can't see it, your brain imagines it in thin air. When there's a pause in the dialogue, you can feel it hum in the silence. Even when you know that everything is fine on screen, you feel a weight in your chest because you can sense decay. And it makes you keenly aware of your own mortality. I'm happy to present to you The Unsung, a podcast about the lesser-known people and events that have quietly shaped our world. Every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth. Sooner or later, that debt is paid. Daichi. 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 In March 2011, the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant on the coast 264 kilometers northeast of Tokyo was hit by a tsunami. Three of the six nuclear cores went into meltdown. 100,000 people were evacuated and a 40-kilometer-wide exclusion zone was enforced. There's a video on YouTube of the tsunami hitting Miyako Harbor in northeast Japan. Cars, boats and buildings are swept away in a surreal transposition of land and water. The sea is awesome, in the biblical sense. Can you imagine the forces involved in an event like this? The earthquake that caused the tsunami was called a megathrust earthquake. 650 kilometers, that's 400 miles of seabed, suddenly slipped under a neighboring tectonic plate. The entire country of Japan moved a few meters to the east. The Fukushima coastline dropped by one and a half feet. At a magnitude 9.1, this was and is the fourth most powerful earthquake on record. The energy released was the equivalent of detonating a Tsar Bomba, the most powerful atomic weapon ever made on the seabed. That's 1,500 times the energy in the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs combined. It caused tsunamis that reached up to 133 feet above sea level and waves that traveled at speeds of 700 kilometers per hour. That's 435 miles per hour. The tsunami killed 19,000 people, many of them at evacuation points. 
It had traveled 10 kilometers inland. The Japanese Prime Minister at the time, Nao Tokan, said, quote, "In the 65 years after the end of World War II, this is the most difficult crisis for Japan." Unquote. Twenty eleven, March eleventh, the day of the earthquake. At the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, automated systems sensed the tremor and shut down all fission reactions. A process with a very cool name of scramming. Even in shutdown, there is spent nuclear fuel that emits ridiculous amounts of heat, and a cooling system needs to be run for a few days until the reactor reaches a state of cold shutdown. In the absence of this cooling, nuclear material will get hot enough to melt, escape its enclosure, and enter the environment—a failure state known to us as nuclear meltdown. Since the power plant needs electricity even after the reactors have stopped running. The plant had emergency diesel generators that ran massive pumps to bring cool seawater in continuously. On this day, they kicked in as intended. Three hours after the quake, the tsunami hit Fukushima Daiichi. At 46 feet high, the tidal wave easily breached the 19-foot-high protective seawall and flooded the nuclear power plant. 18 years before this, in 1993, the Tokyo Electric Power Company (TEPCO) that owned and operated the plant learned about the likelihood of a large earthquake near Fukushima. They ignored this information. In 2000, an in-house report recommended that measures be taken against a potential 50-foot tsunami. Again, it was ignored by TEPCO. In 2008, another in-house study identified an immediate need to better protect the facility from flooding by seawater. They foresaw a 33-foot-high tsunami. Tepco ignored the report. At this moment in 2011, human arrogance collapsed under the weight of thousands of tons of uncaring seawater. The pumps running the cooling system and the generators supplying power to those pumps were submerged or washed away. All that remained was a solitary air-cooled generator that was installed at a height. Remember, the spent fuel in the six reactors at Fukushima Daiichi needed to be cooled for several days still. How could you keep it from overheating when your infrastructure was reduced to flotsam and your country was in a state of emergency? This was the problem Masao Yoshida, the general manager at Fukushima Daiichi, had to solve. Acting decisively, Yoshida tells workers to manually direct seawater into what he thinks is the most immediate threat, reactor number one. They work with the remaining generator and whatever small emergency pumps they have at hand. Barely half an hour after they start, he gets orders from Tepco to stop. Why? Because they had a feeling that the prime minister's office might not like it. Now, Masao Yoshida is a manager in corporate Japan, steeped in a culture of hierarchy, where unflinching loyalty and obedience are expected, and stepping out of line is nearly unthinkable. But Yoshida. Disobeys. In secret, he and his workers continue pouring seawater into the reactor core to prevent meltdown. Later that night, orders from the prime minister's office are relayed: use seawater to cool the reactors. 
Despite hours of efforts by workers, Reactor 1 melts down on the 12th of March, followed by Reactor 3. As 3 melts, it causes an explosion that disrupts the water supply to Reactor 2. Dominoes fall, culminating in the meltdown of three of the six cores at Fukushima Daiichi. At one point, TEPCO even admitted a possibility of a critical nuclear fission reaction starting at Reactor 4's fuel rod storage facilities. That's TEPCO saying that they haven't ruled out a nuclear explosion. As you now know, that didn't happen. The same water that caused this mess was used to relieve it. Workers were brought in and rotated. Cranes, trucks, helicopters and barges were deployed and water was poured, sprayed, dropped wherever possible. Even though the cause did go into meltdown, a catastrophe far worse was averted. Nuclear physicist Michio Kaku said this about Yoshida's defiance of orders. What stopped the reactor accident in the time was the sudden influx of seawater. If they didn't put that seawater in at the right moment, we would have lost northern Japan. That's how close we came to a national worldwide tragedy. Despite experts considering it the second worst nuclear disaster after Chernobyl, there is currently only one death that is directly attributed to radiation. A worker that died years later in 2018 from lung cancer. Fears of radioactive water contamination have also died down. Studies of tuna in the water around Fukushima found that they're within food safety standards. In 2018, guided tours of the exclusion zone began. There are more than 1 million tons of radiation-contaminated water right now that no one knows what to do about. One option that is being considered is to dump it into the ocean the long-suffering victim of our missteps as a species. It's also chilling to consider the incompetence shown by TEPCO. They had multiple occasions to prevent it, but they didn't. Later investigations threw up more errors in judgment. The emergency generators, they were housed in basements and therefore susceptible to flooding. This is a plant constructed next to the sea. During construction, contractors brought this up but were ignored. The plant was constructed at a lower height than initially designed to save money because less power would be used to pump seawater up to cool the reactors. TEPCO's instructions to stop pumping seawater would have been one last disastrous mistake. A mistake Yoshida prevented. Fukushima could have played out worse than Chernobyl. On the other hand, if conditions were marginally different, none of this had to happen. And it didn't in a different Fukushima power plant. Fukushima Daini is the sister plant to Fukushima Daiichi, located 15 kilometers to the south. Ichi in Japanese is one and Ni is two. 2011, March 11th, the day of the earthquake. Sensors detected and shut down the four nuclear reactors the same way they did in Daiichi. Shortly after that, a tsunami rose over the seawall the same way that it did in Daiichi. The flood of water destroyed the coolant pumps the same way it did in Daiichi. Of four boiling water reactors, three were now in danger of meltdown, just like they were in Daiichi. Here we meet plant supervisor Naohiro Masuda. Unlike Daiichi though, Daini still had access to auxiliary power, 
One high-voltage line from the grid still worked and gave them a fighting chance. Control rooms were running and workers could monitor water levels and temperatures. But Masuda was now responsible for two things. Assessing and controlling the damage to the reactors and managing his 200 employees in this moment of crisis. 200 workers that were unsure if their families had even survived the earthquake and tsunami. Masuda had been following crisis management protocols from the moment the earthquake struck right up until the tsunami hit. But once the emergency generators died, he was in uncharted territory. Masuda recognized that he needed to decide whether it was safe to go out. He made charts of the aftershocks and used the waning intensity to convince people that the danger of tsunamis was now past. He later said in an interview with a Harvard Business Review, quote, It was not convincing at all, but I needed them to be convinced. Unquote. He did something that seems impossibly patient given the situation. He gave them the most information he could gather and then he gave them time to think it over. When he asked them to form groups and survey the reactors, no one refused. Masada took stock of what needed to be done and what resources were available to them. His first priority was to get the pumps working again. That involved installing 9 kilometers of new cables. These aren't your everyday cables either. They weigh a ton per 200 meter section, a literal ton. The cables would normally have taken 20 people a month to install. The 200 workers at Fukushima Daini laid 45 tons of cabling in one day. Masada made plans on a whiteboard and constantly changed and shared them with the workers. Some people I know would interpret this transparency as unwise for a leader. But it worked. There were many instances when he had to modify plans at the last minute because of changing conditions in the plant. But no one complained. At one point, workers had spent hours routing the cables I previously mentioned to Reactor 2. They had worked long hours without sleep and news was now filtering in that members of their families had died and some of them had lost their homes. At this point, Masuda's engineers determined that Reactor 1 was heating up and needed water more urgently than Reactor 2. Masuda asked workers to undo the hours of excruciating work they'd put in and relay the cables to Reactor 1. There was confusion, but no drama, and the task was done. Most of what I recount is from the story in the Harvard Business Review. They talk about how this is a story of sense-making, a term coined by organizational theorist Carl Weick. As I understand it, Masuda took information in this overwhelming moment, broke it down and disseminated it to the people around him. As a leader, he trusted the intelligence of the people he worked with. And that built trust back. Contrast this with TEPCO's approach that treated information as a resource to be hoarded and authority as a tight leash. In Fukushima Daiichi, manager Yoshida had to respond to opaqueness with secrecy. Here in Daini, workers responded to transparency with efficiency. Everyone had a common goal, but everyone had created it for themselves. Fortunately, power clearing function is coming back. Four days after the tsunami, on March 15th, all four reactors at Fukushima Daini had reached cold shutdown and were no longer an immediate concern. 
because of the efforts of the workers there and the leadership of Naomi Hirose but also because of a little bit of luck why even leave anything to luck uh, can you can you talk uh, can you can you yeah is it is it coming through and recording on your end right now abby yeah uh hi my name is ben mcdonald i'm uh i'm a mechanical engineer i have my professional engineering certification engineers in canada wear an iron ring on their working hand Its origin story is generally accepted to be a myth, but that doesn't make it any less real. What I kind of remember is the story that was told is that there was a bridge in Quebec made of iron and it was designed poorly. I'm not sure if the engineer cut corners or um if if they if they cut costs in some way, but uh they had done something poorly and the bridge collapsed. you go through a ceremony to receive an iron ring and the iron ring is worn on the pinky of the writing hand of the engineer so i'm right-handed i wear my iron ring on my right hand my wife is also an engineer a chemical engineer so she would wear her iron ring on her left hand the reason you wear the iron ring on the pinky of your writing hand is to be an extra reminder that as an engineer no matter what kind of financial interest or business interest is at play on any decisions that you're making before we stamp off or sign off on any engineering design because it's on the writing hand the idea is that as we do our signature we drag the iron ring through our signature to say is what i'm doing now in the best interest of society Yanosuke Hirai is a young boy in Iwanuma, a small town far north of Tokyo. He's visiting a local Shinto shrine. Legend has it that this shrine in the year 869 was hit by a dreadful tsunami. The funny thing is, the shrine is 7 kilometers inland. Yanosuke will never forget this. He was so affected in fact that as he grew older and trained as a civil engineer, He was obsessed with designing his structures in anticipation of earthquakes and tsunamis. Post World War II, as Japan entered its remarkable growth phase, he became a board member of Tohoku Electric Power Company. This is the story of a third nuclear plant, Onagawa Nuclear Power Plant. Onagawa is located even closer to the earthquake that caused the tsunamis at Fukushima 1 and 
it's only 90 kilometers away from the epicenter, while Fukushima is almost twice the distance. 2011, March 11th. Sensors at Onagawa nuclear plant detect the tremors and automated systems shut down the three boiling water reactors. The same as they did in Fukushima, Daiichi and Daini. Cooling pumps are necessary over the next few days until the fuel reaches cold shutdown. Backup diesel generators come online, the same as Fukushima. Half an hour after the earthquake, a 46-foot-high tsunami hits Onagawa. The same height that will hit Fukushima Daiichi in a few minutes. On this day of the great earthquake, Yanosuke Hirai, that young boy that could never forget the tsunami in the Shinto shrine, he's been dead for 25 years. But during his life, he had designed Onagawa plant, the third house that Big Bad Tsunami is threatening to huff and puff and blow down. During the design meetings in 1968, he'd argued for a seawall that was five times higher than the tsunamis that were expected. Colleagues tried to bargain with him by proposing a 12-meter seawall, saying that it would be more than enough and would save money. Hirai was adamant that it'd be 14.8 meters. It's excessive, they say, but he stays firm, 14.8 meters. The president of the Tohoku Power Company reluctantly agrees, but says he will have to resign to take responsibility for the resultant increase in power costs. Hirai doesn't soften, 14.8 meters. The tsunami that hits Onagawa power plant on March 11th, 2011, is 14 meters high. The seawall holds, the generators and the pumps keep functioning. Onagawa nuclear power plant proceeds to an uneventful cold shutdown. The Onagawa plant went on to serve as a refugee shelter for three months, housing people from the nearby fishing village who had lost their homes. Many people know about Fukushima Daiichi. It was in the news cycle for months. Few knew about Fukushima Daini. Fewer still about Onagawa. People around Chernobyl's event horizon knew that they were going to die, but they still worked. They knew that their government would not listen to them, but they still spoke. And when you watch them, you find yourself caught in the undercurrent of their purpose. You don't have to ask if what they're doing is right or intellectualize their motives, because you can feel it in your bones. Chernobyl shows us that more than hope, purpose defines us as people. Masao Yoshida, Naohiro Masuda and his 200 people, and Yanosuke Hirai, they inspire us not because they show us how to hope, but because they show us how to create a nobler purpose. Enough to fuel us for a few hours of sleepless defiance, a few days of selfless perseverance, and then some extraordinary people, a lifetime of being a human iron ring.
itself, it's like any ring smooth on the inside, but the the outside of it, it kind of has like a like a bit of a corrugated texture. But as an engineer, if they wear it for 20 to 30 years, it'll become much more rounded and seasoned. Thank you so much for listening to this, the first episode of The Unsung. This podcast was written, narrated and edited by me, Abhijit Shailanath. Original music was composed by me as Mudeth. Past and present tenses and metric and imperial units are and were and will be mangled for dramatic effect. More information and references can be found at unsung.mudeth.org. That's unsung.mikeuniformdeltaechotangohotel.org. If you enjoyed listening to it, please send me a message or leave a rating. Goodbye. Check. Check. I'd like to thank Shreya Das Gupta, Ben McDonald, Ryan Gibson, Ashok VA, and Shivalika Shailanath. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Podcast Unsung.